1: It's a minute past four o'clock. Southern California live on KKLA. I'm Bob Lapine. I want you to stop and think for just a minute. When was the last time you had a, a conversation with someone, co-worker, a friend, a family member, somebody who is not a Christian, doesn't go to church, and you were talking about spiritual matters. You were talking about God and the Bible, and whether it's true or not, and whether it's defensible or not. Has it been, has it been uh, more than 30 days since you've had a conversation like that with somebody? Longer than that, maybe. When When you think back to the last conversation you had, was it something that felt awkward, uncomfortable? Were you hesitant to say much. I mean, there's a lot of reason today that I think people are are a little shy about wanting to say, I'm a Christian. Um, I mean, one of those reasons is because people are going to assume if you're a Christian, then they know who you voted for in the last election, or they know uh, what you think, or they they presume what you think about any matter of subjects. So you'd rather just kind of keep it back. You don't want to be immediately dismissed in, in conversations because you say, I'm a Christian, and all of the cultural baggage that comes along with that is now attached to you. Well, th- we, we are not excused from uh, the commission that was given to us by Jesus, the, the great commission. You're familiar with that with that, right? Go into all the world preach the gospel, make disciples, that, that's an all-time mandate, and it's not something that is culturally conditioned. It's not Jesus saying, look, as long as it, as there's no resistance here, do this. But if you face some headwinds, you can back off a little bit. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we need to be adapting and adjusting and be thinking about how we can most winsomely engage with friends who are not Christians have those kinds of conversations, but we have to make it a priority. And we're going to talk about that this hour with Dr. Randy Newman, who is an author. He's a college professor. He's got a brand new book that's come out called Mere Evangelism, and it is, uh, it's connected to the life of C.S. Lewis. You're probably familiar with Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which is a classic. Dr. Newman has explored C.S. Lewis's approaches to engagement on on evangelistic subjects and has put that together in this brand new book called Mere Evangelism. I, I saw an article about this earlier this week, and I reached out to Randy and said, can we talk about this on Southern California Live? And he is gracious to be joining us uh, on the program this afternoon. So, Randy, welcome. It's been it's been about a decade since we were together, but I'm glad to be reconnected with you.
2: Yes, I'm glad to be with you, too. Thanks so much for this opportunity, Bob.
1: And share with everybody a little bit of your background, because for 30 years, you were with one of the leading uh, evangelistic organizations on the planet.
2: That's right. I was with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. They now have a new name, Crew, but I was with them for 34 years, and I'm tremendously thankful for that because I it just gave me lots and lots and lots of experiences of talking with college students about the Lord. And I I I think I I just learned a whole ton by listening and seeing what connected with students. It was it was a great experience. Um after a while, I, I started connecting with another organization here in the Washington, D.C. area called the C.S. Lewis Institute, and uh, they really liked some of my thinking about evangelism and started having me do a lot of teaching for them. And after a while, it was, you know, I I can't really keep doing all of this. It was exhausting. And so I uh, <laughs> sought the Lord for guidance, and I'm doing much more now with the C.S. Lewis Institute. I left Campus Crusade, but... Um, I still provide a whole lot of evangelism training for churches and uh different groups and the c s lewis Institute so i'm um, I'm very grateful for the way the Lord uh orchestrated all of that.
1: Randy has written it, and by the way, this is the other we should just say because we're on in l a and and since he wrote <laughs> I love l a this is the other Randy Newman right
2: that you, you know I, I i like that song and i like that guy's music um but i am i'm i'm not the guy that who they play those songs that uh uh dodger games and laker games so yes i'm i'm uh l- less famous randy newman but no
1: connection uh, with toy story whatsoever
2: uh no but i i gotta tell you people really they they love that music and they they want me to sing it and uh but then it, it, no it just it doesn't go well so anyway we'll, we'll stop there
1: Randy's written a number of books. In fact, the first time we talked, it was about your book, "Questioning Evangelism," which mm-hmm. was a book that 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 really laid out the idea that uh, we try to come maybe too apologetically into evangelistic conversations, too defensively, and really the open door may come through just saying, "Well, that's interesting. Tell me more," and and opening a dialogue and doing a lot more listening than we normally do, right?
2: Yeah, I um, for for quite a while, uh, my approach to evangelism was where I did all the talking, and all I wanted the non-Christian to do was just sort of listen, shake his head uh, every so often, go uh huh, uh huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't really working very well. I just I, I didn't really see very good conversations, and we certainly didn't see a whole lot of uh, decisions. And uh, for a whole host of reasons, I just started experimenting with asking questions and doing more listening. And it just led to much, much better conversations. We saw some students come to faith. Um, so so that book came out of um, several years of failure, and then several years of experimenting, and then trying to apply more of a, a rabbinic approach to conversing about spiritual things. And by the way, it, it just seemed... Rather amazing when I started digging into it, how often Jesus asked questions and answered questions with questions, and engaged people in the answering process, so that it wasn't just them listening; it was them moving gradually from unbelief to belief.
1: And would you say that foundational approach, where we ask a lot of questions and engage in dialogue, is that still uh, does, does that fit with where the culture is? Today, a decade after you wrote the book
2: oh I, I think it 's even more necessary now. Um, I think uh, as you said in your lead in there there 's a tremendous amount of uh, preconceived ideas and resistance and animosity, hostility to the gospel um, and and there there was a period of time when that wasn 't the case for us in America at least but Um, You know, Jesus gave us lots of warnings that people would hate us, that's the word he used, and that there would be opposition. And the vast majority of Christian history in the world has been that um, most of it has been in in antagonistic environments. But um, in America, I think we got lulled into several decades of people either, either, just being receptive or, or apathetic. It was like, well, hey, you know, if you believe... I mean, you know, the 1980s, I think, were a decade of... Uh, like, if, that's, if that works for you, fine. Uh, not for me, but it's no big deal. Um, but those days are gone. Now it's, wait a minute, you believe what? You're you're a source of the problem in our world. world. Right. And that's much more in line with the history of the, the Christian faith, uh, whether we like it or not. And so... Um, uh, I, I think uh, the questioning and dialoguing, if we can do it gently and respectfully, to use the two terms in First Peter 3.15, uh, I think it can yield much, much better conversations.
1: So let's talk about C.S. Lewis and the new book and what you learn from examining his life, because certainly he was in Europe at a time when Europe was becoming a post-Christian culture. So maybe we're a decade behind, or not a decade, a generation behind him. But but what was going on in England in his lifetime is is a parallel in some ways to what's going on in America in our lifetime. Don't you think?
2: Oh yes, very much so. But you know, it goes it goes even further back to Lewis's experience himself. And uh, the reason the reason I, I I got this idea about writing this book. Um, I mean after after writing other things and I was doing a lot of teaching about evangelism the topic of pre-evangelism always came up what are the what are the what are the prior conversations we need to have with people what are what are the the conversations before we get to the point where we say would you like to know God personally there's a whole bunch of prior conversations we need to have and things we need to do so that when we do present the gospel, evangelism, it makes sense to people. And that's what I was finding on the college campuses. That's what I was finding in my interactions with people in my neighborhood and uh, wherever. And and so I, I started thinking, C.S. Lewis did this better than anybody I know. In, in the radio broadcasts on the BBC, what eventually became the book, Mere Christianity, Lewis started further back... In the conversation that most people do, and I just thought we should study how he did it, and then how he he wove it into his fiction in Narnia and other places. And um, uh, the publishers at the at the Good Book Company they like this idea, and so. Um, but but again, it comes from Lewis's life. Lewis basically became an atheist when he was nine or ten years old because he lost faith in God because his mother died, and it was very, very tragic and sad. Um, But then he had to have lots of prior preliminary conversations with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson and other friends that moved him gradually from unbelief to belief. And I just thought his life experience and then the way he did apologetics and evangelism uh, gives us so much that we need to learn and apply in our day and age.
1: So as somebody who has been involved actively in evangelistic work all your life to to read CS Lewis and and dive in here has it has it brought to light things that you thought I I don't know why I didn't see that before or why I haven't been doing that or did it just uh systematize things that you were already doing instinctively
2: Oh um well, first of all, I, I appreciate that very positive statement that I've been involved with it all my life. Um, I, I, I did have I did have twenty years of unbelief. Um, I, I didn't become a believer until my second year in college. Uh, I came from a Jewish background and very skeptical and very resistant to the gospel because, uh, you know, for for growing up Jewish, uh, the idea about becoming a Christian is like joining the enemy team. I mean, it's really a big deal. So. Um, so I had a lot of skepticism and doubt leading in, and so my route to faith was through the the very much the pre-evangelism route. Um, uh, your question was: I discovering things in Lewis um, that I hadn't seen before. Well, not not so much that I hadn't seen before, but when I started looking through that lens, I I started seeing more of it much more deeply with a greater appreciation and, um, and and a desire to do and to weave those kinds of things into the conversations I have with
1: non-believers. So give me an example of something you saw in Lewis that you just thought, that's something that we need in 2021 in America as we think about mm-hmm. engagement. Well,
2: Perhaps one of the biggest things, and, and this is definitely something that I haven't done anywhere near as much as I should, and as I hopefully will be doing in the future. Um, Lewis engaged the imagination. He 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 didn't just present rational arguments, although he certainly did that better than just about anybody, I think. But he engaged the imagination so that when you listen to Lewis or when you read him, you don't just get the sense of, Hmm. This makes sense. I should believe it. You also, and you, you get that, but you also get, wow, this sounds good. I, I hope it's true. It's, it feels wonderful. Um, and, and he just, he just created these pictures in your mind that grabbed a hold of your emotions. So he, he talked about a land where it was always winter and never Christmas. Mm-hmm. What what a vivid picture of a horrible reality! <laughs> I mean, you just you just think about that. It's like, oh, that's just, that's just that's horrible, and then you start looking through that lens and go, I, I think that's what life is like totally apart from God, or uh, Lewis, Lewis gave us pictures of what it would feel like to become a Christian, not just what are the things I need to understand in order to. Become a Christian. So he talked about becoming a Christian was like um, rebels laying down their arms. Now rebels laying down arms that that, that just gives you a, a, a flavor uh, of what it feels like to become a Christian. He said um, becoming a Christian is like turning full speed astern. <laughs> I just love that. Or or he talked about how it becoming a Christian is like um, a stone statue becoming a real living creature, or it 's like when someone has been asleep for a very long time and then gradually they realize that they have uh, woken up um, and he just had he had dozens of these kinds of um, vivid imaginative uh, stimulating ideas so that so that people almost felt like they wanted to become a Christian. Before logically, they were convinced that they should become a Christian. I don't. I don't know if I'm expressing it. I. I know I'm not expressing it as well as Lewis did. <laughs> and and so what I what I what I want to do in my conversations with people is not just tell them, well, here's what I believe, and here are some reasons why you should believe it. I, I do want to say all of that, but I also want to say, you know, for me, when I became a Christian, it was like, it was like I had my eyes shut. For such a long time, but then when they opened up, it was like, uh, all of a sudden I can see. Or I, I could give a, a an imaginative picture of, um, I kept looking for something that would taste delicious and everything tasted bland, um, but when I became a Christian, it was like, everything started having a flavor to it that I hmm. hadn't felt or tasted before and so what i encourage people is to think of what what would be an a an analogy an imaginative picture of what it was like for you to become a christian and that when if somebody ever says to you so so like you became religious how did that happen you would weave those kind of flavors in along with the historical data and the logical facts that you believed
1: you bring that up and the thing that comes to mind is a a song from 40 years ago that keith green and phil kege both recorded where they sing like waking up from the longest dream how real it seemed until your love broke through and and that's what you're Uh describing isn't it
2: yes exactly um there's this one place where um uh, I, I mean, Lewis just wove in all of these analogies so much into his book that after a while you just think, well, I, I guess every write, writer does this. And then you read other writers and go, oh, oh no, they, they don't. Um, I remember reading this one, it, it might have even been in one of his letters, but he said he was talking about the, the people who who were writing in his day or who taught in the university. And he said, Um, they don't realize that this world is the vestibule to eternity. And now we don't, not a lot of people know what the word vestibule is, but I I grew up and at my house we had a vestibule. It's like this extra little uh, structure, added on to the outside of the house that was sort of like a mudroom or a a transfer zone. So you came in from the outside into the vestibule, and that's where you took off your muddy boots and your dirty clothes before you enter into the house. So it's just this temporary passageway. And so Lewis thought, this this world is the vestibule to eternity. Isn't that great? That is. and and so I, I think that's one of the biggest lessons I got in digging in and writing the book, that we need to involve the imagination, not just logic and reason and arguments. Bo- both are necessary. So it's not – I'm not downplaying logic, because certainly Lewis did that very, very well. But we need to weave together the imaginative imagery – and the logical arguments.
1: We're talking with Randy Newman. The book is called Mere Evangelism, 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help You Share Your Faith. It's been out for a couple of months. It's available now. And it really is helpful to get us to think more broadly about different ways we can engage with friends, family members, coworkers, whoever it is, and have spiritual conversations and begin to open some doors that lead to Presenting the gospel. You're welcome to join us if you'd like at 888 528 2557. That's 888 52 Talks. This is Southern California Live on KKLA. We'll be back with more with Randy Newman in just a minute. Southern California Live. KKLA I'm Bob Lapine we're talking about sharing our faith and lessons we can learn from CS Lewis we're talking with Randy Newman who's written a book called Mere Evangelism My senior year in high school I was uh, I had been selected from our high school to uh represent us as a base uh in the in the all-state choir So I was on hmm. on a bus ride going from St. Louis to Jefferson City, Missouri, to sing with the Allstate Choir that year. And I was reading on the way to to our choir, I was reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think for the first time. And I knew it was allegory. I knew there was a spiritual theme to it. I was engaged with the children's story like we all were. And there was a point in reading that book where we come to the scene where the negotiation takes place Aslan and the White Witch speaking privately. After which, Aslan comes back, and Edmund is set free, and is uh, is no longer. He he is not going to have to pay the penalty for his treason. And then, of course, you go on and you find out the reason is because of what's been negotiated, and that is the the death of Aslan on behalf of Edmund. The the exchange has been made. And I remember closing the book on the bus and thinking, so that's what that means. I mean, I had heard for years, <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. And I thought, okay, Jesus died for my sins. I don't understand. That's just was kind of this, this cliche, Jesus died for your sins. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, so... There's, there's there's a trade here, there's an exchange, there's a price paid, there's Romans 3 brought to bear. It, it was a remarkable moment to the point that I can almost take you to the spot on the road on I-44 where that that book got closed and that thought first dawned on me for the first time. It's part of the remarkable legacy of C.S. Lewis that he was able to find ways to penetrate uh, our thinking in in a way that few people in the last hundred years have, and that's that's what's at the heart of Randy's book, Mere Evangelism, where you are looking at this unique ability of somebody who is both a storyteller and a scholar to come at the Christian faith from so many different dimensions and engage the, the content in so many different ways. Something pretty remarkable about C.S. Lewis, Right.
2: Oh, absolutely. And um, I, I love that illustration you just gave from your own life. And, and what, what Lewis did there is, again, he didn't just present logic. He certainly did. I, I want to be really emphatic about that. But first, he grabbed a hold of your emotions, because you heard the story about Edmund and the the Turkish delight that he was eating. And the the way Lewis described it, I mean, you almost almost started salivating that you wanted that <laughs> Turkish delight candy. And then uh he gets, you know, uh deceived by the white witch and you just your your emotions get brought in there and you almost want to you, you almost want to jump into the book and say, Don't do it, Edmund, don't fall for her lies. And and you know, and then he gets trapped and so so you, you identify emotionally and that when then when he has his sins paid for and gets set free, you're right, the doctrine of the atonement becomes so much more enlivened in you because you, you came in through the imagination and the emotions as well as the logic and the intellect.
1: Now, um, we, we'll, we'll have to talk about whether it was ransom theory or penal substitutionary atonement, but we'll do that in another, another time, right? I hope so. Um, <laughs> I
2: I hope that we'll do it, and I hope we'll do it another time. Uh, so, um, you know, um, so, so Lewis had this very very active imagination from his childhood, and stories, and he read books, and um, he he wasn't very he wasn't very good with sports or games, and so he spent a lot of time indoors reading books and. Having his imagination captured through stories and mythology, um, but then he was trained very, very rigorously intellectually by a tutor uh, named Kirkpatrick, who just who just made him thorough in his argumentation. And you put those two together, and yeah, I, I, there's been nobody else like him. Um, it, we, we do have to, by the way, just kind of step back from it all and say, um, God chose to use this guy um, in absolutely astonishing ways, because he was, I mean, he he was an academician who probably would have preferred just to stay in his studies and um, read books and, you know, in, you know, private tutoring of a few individual students, but... God got a hold of him and said, I'm going to use this guy in ways that you you can't totally explain just by his natural giftedness. It was also God's sovereign choice to put that guy on the radio and have his books sell in the millions and translate it into dozens and dozens of of languages. I I think it's almost funny. Lewis, Lewis thought all of his books would be out of print and forgotten within five years after his death. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my, was he wrong on that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have to ask you, especially now that the, the movie is out. Have you seen the movie, The Most Reluctant Convert, that's out in theaters oh, right I'm, now? Oh,
2: I, I wish you wouldn't have asked me that on live radio. Um, n- no, not yet. Um I'm really hoping to go. Please don't tell Max McLean that I haven't seen it yet, because that could be really embarrassing. And well, you, you um, and I both share that, I,
1: and and I've got to get to theaters and see it as well because the people okay. I've talked to have said it's it's charming and delightful, and I look forward to seeing it. But I have to oh, ask, I, in the I, context I, of that, Randy, because of what you know about Lewis, would he hold up under evangelical scrutiny in 2021, and would? modern evangelical churches be having him come speak at their churches, or would he be dismissed as too heterodox?
2: Oh, man, this is where you wanted to go, Bob. Yeah, that's um, where I want to uh, go. <laughs> well, I, I had to include that in my book. Um, no, he's um, uh, he's so very, very good at at so many very good things, but he also bought into some Yeah, heterodox uh, views. He flirted with the idea that people of other religions could be saved sort of indirectly through Jesus, even if they didn't acknowledge Jesus, which I think is absolutely wrong. Um, He held some views about Scripture that um, uh, I don't think were as as orthodox as he should have been, I I love his book Reflections on the Psalms. It has some great great stuff about praise and doxology, um, but then there's some places where he he, I, I think he's critical of the biblical text in ways that he shouldn't have been. So we often joke that we at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington D.C. could never have C.S. Lewis come as a guest speaker. He wouldn't he wouldn't pass uh, our our. He couldn't sign our statement statement of faith, um, so I think that may be also part of. Isn't that wonderful about how God chooses to use a guy who was wrong on a bunch of things, uh-huh. but but when he was right, he was exactly right, and he said it so much better than other people have said it. So um, yeah, he's a he's a mixed bag, and. Um, uh, and he also smoked a lot of cigarettes. I think that could get him in trouble in a lot of places. He, he also drank quite a bit of uh, alcohol. There's there's one famous story of um, uh, Tolkien got a letter. Some, someone someone wrote, or, or Tolkien was reading uh, something about Lewis in a in a local newspaper, and it, and they called him the the dower Mister Lewis, or the, or the no 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 the ascetic Mister Lewis and Tolkien wrote a letter to his son and said ascetic mr lewis i just left him at the pub and he was on his third pint and it was only 10 a.m. so um
1: <laughs> so yeah he
2: um he, yeah he wouldn't get invited to to as many places as we would like but so you you read him with a with you know a critical eye and you keep your bible open and you say when he gets it right boy does he say it great and when he's wrong we say well um uh, no earthly author is going to uh, have it totally right uh, outside of
0: Scripture, the scriptural authors.
1: What he's probably best known for is his penetrating logic and, and his logical mm-hmm. arguments. And I think we are, we're in a day when, as we talk about evangelism, a lot of people will say, this is the exact wrong way to try to engage the contemporary culture is with logic and reason when it comes to evangelism. Is that right?
2: Well I I I think you're right that uh, plenty of people would be uh, critical of that approach. Uh they want to say that in our postmodern world people don't value logic. Um but but um uh, but God made us logical beings. Uh we're more than just logical, but we are certainly logical and just taught in very logical propositions and the Bible is a very intellectually engaging book. I mean, the, the Book of Romans is a long, extended, logical, rational argument. So, um, uh, there's one place I, I think it's in the very, very first Screw Tape letter where Lewis says, um, uh, "You know, the, the devil is trying to say keep them away from logic. We we don't want him to do, You know, don't we don't want them thinking or using reason and rational arguments." Um, so that's what the devil wants. Keep it, keep it, keep it in, in the world of jargon. Um, we don't want we don't want people thinking that it's trying to decide whether it's true or false. They, we want them to think about whether it's whether it's contemporary or out or outdated. And what what the devil says in the screw tape letter is the problem with argument is. It puts the whole struggle on the enemy's own ground, the enemy being God. God made us rational, logical creatures. Um, He made us more than that, social, emotional, and all of that. Um, But logic and reason has to be an important part of our evangelism. Uh, Again, God gave us a book, and Jesus used arguments and, and rational statements. So we need to include that as well.
1: This is where we've got to learn to be multifaceted in our approach to evangelism. It's not a one size fits all. Do this. Take, take this little yellow book and just take people through the four questions. And that's the way you do it. I mean, that, that may be a way, but it's not the exclusive way. And you point that out in the book Mirror Evangelism, which is the book we're talking about this afternoon with Randy Newman. This is a great book to help you think more holistically when it comes to spiritual engagement with friends and coworkers and family members. You are welcome to join us this afternoon at 888-528-2557. Lines are open and we will continue the conversation with Randy Newman after this timeout. Stay with us. I thought we... <laughs> thought we should just uh, have the other Randy Newman join us this afternoon as we're talking to Randy Newman, the author of the book, Mere the Evangelism. Great. <laughs> we don't have him on the other line. We just got his music here in the background. Okay. Randy uh, Newman has written a book called Mere Evangelism, uh, looking at C.S. Lewis and his approach to that subject. I, I, there's a story I remember um, reading Sheldon Van Oken's book, a severe mercy. Van Huken was a student of Lewis's. You know this this story, Randy, and he was he was somebody who was uh, questioning about his own faith. He and his his wife had uh, both grown up as non Christians, and here they were studying with Lewis, and he had lots of questions. He kept peppering Lewis with all kinds of what about this, what about that, what about this, and Lewis finally wrote to him at one point and said. I could answer your questions, but I'm not going to any longer because it's obvious to me that the hound is heaven uh, the Hound of Heaven is after you, and it's just a matter of time <laughs> and and Van Ocken kind of dropped the letter like, what does he mean like like all of a sudden i i I have no agency left in any of this. He was a little put off by the whole thing, but of course it was true because the Hound of Heaven was after him, and he eventually uh came to faith did lewis press the question with people or was he more likely to be someone who would just say i'm going to lay it out there and you decide what you're going to do with this i'm going to leave it up to the sovereignty of god
2: well um he did call for a decision he did he did make that very clear because that is part of the gospel message if if we don't if we don't tell people they must respond and that and that they will respond one way or the other. If they choose not to respond, that is a kind of response. And so there are, there are three or four places in mere Christianity where he, he really pushed the listener or the reader, you need to decide, you need to make a decision. So, so that is part of, of evangelism. It, uh, we haven't really preached the gospel in all of its fullness if we don't tell people, you must respond to this. In one way or the other, um, I, and I and I think Lewis realized that that was part of what people said to him that pushed him from unbelief to belief. Um, there is a certain element of urgency, and I think he he modeled that well for us. Um, you know, it it is interesting in mere Christianity, the first appeal. After about the first five chapters was was not all that strong, and I think after it was all finished, he went, hmm, if I get another chance of this i 'm going to push it stronger and And the response to those first five radio broadcasts were very positive, and they booked them for another five and The second appeal is is more strong, but still it was it was respectful because he also knew you you need to respect people 's choice you need to uh, you, you you can't you know hammer people over the head with it,
1: and and so I want you to to compare and contrast for us. I, I look at modern evangelism in in the way that it's often clumsily done by a lot of us who are evangelicals, an, an insufficient uh, explanation of the gospel message. Uh, we, we, here's, here's a typical approach and you know this, Randy, people will go and say, do you want meaning and purpose in life? Do you want happiness and joy? Uh, do, do you want, uh, a, a comfort in trials? Jesus will provide these things for you. All you have to do is surrender your life here. Follow me. Pray this prayer. It's a little sales pitchy without ever talking about sin and substitution and, and death and atonement, uh, do do we need to, all of us, have a more clear understanding of what the essentials are when we share the gospel with somebody?
2: Well, sure. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about um, uneasiness. Um, we need to find a way, and again, Lewis modeled this for us, um, we need to find a way to help people feel uncomfortable. And either, either... We only talk about the positive benefits. If you believe this, you pray this prayer, everything will be great. And, and so nobody's really uncomfortable in that situation. Or it's all uncomfortable. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. Uh, your life is a mess. And Lewis um, created or, no, no, helped people sense uh, an uneasiness. And one, on the one side is, There's really beauty in the world. There's wonderful things in the world. There are good things about us because we're people created in the image of God. And yet, at the same time, there's ugliness in the world, and there's ugliness within me. And we have to kind of help people feel uncomfortable. There's one whole chapter where he he titled it, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. And so we need to find a way to, to tell people or to help people see the the goodness of God and the holiness of God, the 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 goodness of being a person created in the image of God, and and the ruin that we have created because we're sinful, rebellious uh, rebels. So, and and when people feel that tension, that's when we can say, here's how Jesus came and satisfied both God's holiness and His loving kindness. It can help us connect with the very reason we were created in the image of God, and have the barrier between us and God removed by what Jesus did on the cross. And, and I think the more we keep pointing people to Jesus, is and what we want people to see is, isn't it amazing how some people just loved him and followed him, and other people hated him. They, they tried throwing him off a cliff. They, they thought he was demon-possessed. I mean, it's just so extreme and what we want people to feel is, why is that? Why why did they have such a, a strong reaction to it, either, either strong in the direction of, I, I will drop my fishing nets and I will follow him anywhere, or he's a lunatic and we should kill him. And, uh, and, you... and so we, we have to help people feel uncomfortable before they find the wonder and the grace of the gospel.
1: And I, I think there are... More people in our culture in our world, maybe this is because I, I live in the South, but there are more people in our culture in our world who are are just fine with Jesus as long as it's the Jesus who's on their team, who thinks like they do and supports whatever causes they support rather than embracing the Jesus of scripture and and yeah. people who frankly have a, a minimalistic view of their own sinfulness when they think about uh, about their need to to surrender to Christ.
2: Well, you know, you, you just touched on something about it, the Jesus of Scripture. We want to get people into the Bible. We we want them to see Jesus as he is revealed in the Gospels. So I, I, I was just talking um, to Rico Tice with Christianity Explored, and I love their ministry because they, they just get people into the Bible, and they let, they let the Bible be the forcefulness that is needed. And the Jesus of Scripture is... Um, he he's very disturbing i mean he, he's he's very very good in the things that he talks about himself and and the promises of the kingdom and he's also very disturbing about being lost and separated and 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 the 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 horrible effects of sin and when you when you yeah you're right. If you only select the parts that you like, well it's not really all that disturbing, but but then you're you're getting a very different Jesus. It's not it's not the Jesus in the Bible. It's not it's not the one who really does exist.
1: I'm I'm thinking as we're talking about my own church and our small groups and I'm thinking it would sure seem to me to be a fruitful thing for a small group to get together and go chapter by chapter through your book, Mere Evangelism, and start to have some conversations about different ways of engagement to start to talk about, uh, about how we have these conversations, because I think the easiest thing for any of us is just to kind of go, I'm uncomfortable with this. Therefore I will wait until somebody says to me, um, how can I come to know Christ before I will do any evangelism? And we just kinda of back off and, and say nothing. I started today by saying we don't this is not optional for us. This is a commission from Christ that we share our faith. How can Christians become more bold, more engaging, and more committed to this rather than running away from it?
2: Well, um, well, we need another whole hour show, Bob. I don't know if I can do that that quickly. But um, what, what I will say is, one of the things that we have to do is we have to we have to uh, give up our hope that it will that it will be easy or comfortable. I, I just don't think it is, and I, I think a lot of us think. Well, if I ever get to the point where it seems easy or natural, that's when I'll start. It'll never be easy or comfortable. Uh, you know, I, I write books on evangelism. People think that I'm comfortable or, or good at this. I'm, I'm not. I, I, I struggle and stumble, and, and I'm not comfortable. Um, but but God uses us as as very uncomfortable evangelists. So I think that's the first thing, is get past this hope or expectation that this should be easy. It's not easy, and it's getting more and more difficult. The, the other thing I think, though, is to remember, it, it's this enterprise. Evangelism is with what what people do and what God does, and God is at work in our conversations. He's working in us to give us wisdom and boldness of what to say, and we're we're pleading and begging and praying and asking God to work in the life of the person we're talking to. And when we remember that God is the one in charge of the whole process, it's just there's something freeing about. Oh, Lord, I don't know the best way to say this. I'm going to try this, and, and Lord, would, would you take and take what I say and use it? Because you can, you can do miracles. You can do anything. You can open up blind eyes. And I think remembering that uh, makes it just a tiny bit less intimidating, just a tiny well, bit.
1: I hope that our conversation today has caused listeners to, first of all, want to find out more about C.S. Lewis and, and his approach and dig into your book and look at a more full-orbed approach to how we engage people in evangelism. I hope it has also stirred up uh, a commitment to to be more bold and more forthright in this. I, I hope they'll get a copy of the book, Mere Evangelism. And Randy, I appreciate you you writing this and appreciate you continuing to challenge us in this area. And thanks for taking time to be with us this afternoon.
2: Oh, you're very, very welcome. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity, Bob. Thanks.
1: Randy Newman, the author of the book, Mere Evangelism. And I bring this up because tomorrow we're going to talk about something that is probably the other thing that's really, we're really bad at. We're, we're not good at evangelism. We need to get better. The other thing I think we're really bad at, maybe this is just me, but Many of us are not very good at prayer. Daniel Henderson's going to join us tomorrow to talk about how we can be more engaged, more activated in our prayer life. That's going to be in the first hour of tomorrow's program. And then Neil Shenvey joins us tomorrow afternoon to talk about whether critical race theory is a real thing and how we should think about all that biblically. So I hope you can be back with us again tomorrow afternoon Have a great evening, and we'll see you at 3 tomorrow on Southern California Live on KKLA